Yeah, we can clap for that. We can clap for that. That has me so fired up, and it's honestly insane that none of this existed even a, a year ago. Like, we kicked off Salt Company and Mercy Hill in August, so that's like six months. And these are just a few of the stories. These are just a few of the things that we are already seeing God do here. And it's really not about Mercy Hill or Salt Company. It's about Jesus, and he's king. And so, man, how fun to get to be a part of just what God's doing here. Um, yes. Baptisms this Sunday, several people in this room are getting baptized. Come, hear their stories. It's going to be incredible. I can't wait to celebrate. It's going to be hype. But uh, my name is Timmy, and I'm the SALT director here. And honestly, TBH, every every time I uh, introduce myself and say my name is Timmy, I have this this fear that, okay, when I was in college, I was sitting in the chair like you and our college director, same position as me, got up on the stage to go preach that night, and he said, you know, hey, everybody, welcome to Refuge. My name is the college director. And his parents didn't really name him the college director. That would be cruel. He just had a little brain fart. And I feel like that's going to happen. I mean, yeah, it's going to happen to me eventually. So, yes. Uh, anyways, I don't know why I'm talking about that. But <laughs> I feel like every time, don't say my name is the Saul director. That would be horrible. Um, but, yes, if it's your first time here, welcome to Saul Company. I'm really glad you're here. Last week, we kicked off our series called Parables, where we are looking at a few of Jesus's parables. Now, what a parable is, we talked about this last week, is it comes from the Greek word parabole, and it means a story alongside, okay? And Jesus would use these whenever he would teach, often to make a different point or like an illustration. So tonight, we're we're looking at one, and, and, and what led Jesus to, you know, speak this parable to this man that we're gonna see tonight is this guy goes to him with a question. And it's one that, that I'm guessing all of us in this room have, have either asked before or at least thought about. And the question is this, it's, it's what must I do to have eternal life? What's it take to have eternal life? So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 10. That's where we're going to be. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have a bunch of blue ones should, like around your chair or your neighbor's chair. You can steal theirs. Uh, and if it's one of those Bibles, it should be like page 506 or 7. If somebody knows it, shout it. 506. Boom. Just a guess. Last week we were in Luke 15, and that was like 5-something. So nailed it. Anyways, um, all right. We'll start in verse 25. And uh, let me pray for us first, just before we read God's Word. Father, we love you. Um, thank you so much just for, for who you are and, and some of the things that we've uh, just been seeing you do through, through our church and that Salt Company. Um, it's an honor and privilege to get to be a part. Lord, that doesn't make us any more valuable in your eyes. We're valuable because of Jesus and what he's done. That's the greatest news in the world. And so I pray, Lord, tonight as we open up your word um, and we talk and wrestle through this really important question um, that you would speak to us uh, you would reveal yourself to us and, and show us who you are. Um, I pray this in Jesus' name. All right, Luke 10, verse 25. That's where we'll start. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to him to put him to the test. He's, he's standing up to Jesus here. Saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Verse 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had, oh, sorry. Um, I can't see, I can't read from Louisiana, 31. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, thanks still, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. All right, done reading. That was hard. So what we have here, let me, let me just explain the context of what's going on, is, is Jesus uh, is with his, his disciples, most likely, and, and this lawyer, this man who's, who's a Jewish lawyer, comes up to him, and he asks him this question. Now, don't think lawyer like we think today, like in civil law, like this, this, this guy was an expert in, in Old Testament law, like religious law. This dude was a theologian. And he goes up, and he asks him the, this question, it says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And if you think about it, like he's asking a really important question. Like I said earlier, it's probably one that all of us have either asked before or thought about ourselves. And he's asking the right person. But what we see is his motive is off. You see, he stands up to ask the question, which back in that day, that was like a sign of respect. But Luke says, what his motive was. He says he was trying to test Jesus, to trap him. In other words, this man was, was a hypocrite. He wasn't being genuine. If you look throughout the Bible and you read about Jesus' life, you'll see often people would go and approach Jesus with, with different questions, and, and really they had pretty bad motives in mind. Often it was to, to try to score a point and make themselves look better or to catch Jesus and trap him and make Jesus look bad. And it's kind of a lot how, how I was, like when I think back to my, to my days just as a young link in school, and I feel like I was this little pest to all my teachers where I loved catching them, you know, doing something wrong. So, you know, and asking them dumb little questions to trick them. And I was, I was pretty mischievous. And, and I would do that so that I'd feel better about myself or I could make the class laugh. And I thought that was hilarious. But, but this man, like, he's not being genuine here. He's really trying to, to interrogate Jesus and put him to the test. Like I said, this guy was, was an expert in Old Testament law. And so last week, the parable we looked at, one of the things that we noticed was 
the, the types of people who were drawn to Jesus. They weren't the, the, um, the most sophisticated or, or the, the best of the best people. They were actually like the worst of the worst sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes. Those were the ones who were drawing near to Jesus. And so it's likely, I read one commentator says that this guy, who's a who's, you know, religious expert, is probably trying to catch Jesus and see if Jesus will disregard the law. You know, when he asks, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Like if Jesus lets all these people who are, who are nobodies and who, who do really bad things come around him, then he must, he must not care about the law. He must not care. And if Jesus says that, well, then, then he's caught. Then I know that he's a false teacher. He's not who he really says he is. He's not really the son of God. He'll be caught. But Jesus wisely, because he's God, (laughs) responds with a question. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? See that in verse 26? See, he knows this guy's an an expert in the law. He says, okay, what's the law say? How, How do you understand it? And the man answers, verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. See, he quotes two different scriptures from the Old Testament. One's in Deuteronomy 6, the other's in Leviticus 19. And he's got to memorize. They're right there. He's just ready to spit it out at Jesus. And it's essentially, if you look at the command, love God perfectly and love people perfectly, your neighbors perfectly. But look how Jesus responds. He said to him, you've said correctly, do this and you will live. You see, I think Jesus' response must have stunned this guy. I think he would have been totally just caught off guard. And you can almost see this twinkle in Jesus' eye saying, well done, my man. Indeed, you're right. Anyone who meets such a standard doesn't need grace at all. If you want to do something to inherit eternal life, this is what you must do. Go right ahead. Do this and you'll live. It's like the sarcasm is just dripping from Jesus' mouth. And the lawyer knows it. And he's like, I have to justify myself. I got to justify myself. Like I'm trying to catch Jesus and trap him. And now Jesus totally just flipped this on me and he's starting to realize I can't meet that standard. Like he probably didn't expect Jesus to say, hey, do this and you'll live. Now he's like feeling I can't do it, but he won't admit it. He won't admit it because of his pride. He won't say I need mercy. Verse 29, Luke tells us, but he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You ever notice that like when, when two people are arguing or they're in a debate, like someone will say, well, well, what exactly do you mean by this? Like, you know, what do you mean when you say that? And he's trying, like, who exactly is my neighbor? You know, to avoid the issue that's actually on the table. Um, and the reason we do this is so that we can escape, and get away, and not actually be honest with where we're at. Like, this happened to me in a very real way this last year when um, a year ago I was living in, in Cedar Falls, Iowa. 
Uh, and judging by y'all's Kahoot skills, I'm guessing a few of you know where Cedar Falls, Iowa is. But um, that's where I live. My wife and I lived there for a year before we moved here. And, and one day I was driving home and, you know, this very long straight road just outside my neighborhood. Uh, every, everything in Iowa is like long and straight too. There's no curves like in Cincinnati. But I'm driving down the road and I see all the way at the end of the road, there's a cop car and he's coming this way. And what's the first thing you do when you see a cop car and you're driving? You hit the brakes, right? But not me, not this time. I know, I know I'm not speeding. And he's coming towards me. I don't even think about it. Now, I didn't have my seatbelt on. Um, <laughs> fun fact, but there's a few minutes in the house. Anyway, I should have, I should have. I broke the law. He's coming towards me. And as soon as we pass, uh, the lights go on and he does a U-turn. And I'm like, crap, there's, there's no way he saw that he didn't have my seatbelt on. There's no way. And I'm not speeding. So I, I pull over uh, on the side of the road and he comes up behind me and he's in his car. And, and, and then I'm thinking, okay, like, and I, by this point, I did throw my seatbelt on, which was totally horrible. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I shouldn't be telling the story. And... <laughs> And, and he comes up, you know, and I'm like, okay, I know what it is now. It comes to me. Iowa, you need two plates. You need a license plate on the back of your car in the front. Louisiana, I don't, what is it in Ohio? You need both? Just one. Amen. Amen. All right, but not in Iowa. You need two. And I'm like, okay, I got this. I'm going to be able to talk my way right out of this. I've only lived here for a few months. I even have the license plates. I just don't have the little screw holes in my, on my front bumper to be able to put it in. Well, he comes up to me and very quickly shatters my dreams and tells me the reason that he pulled me over is because I was going 38 and a 25. And I was like, oh, dang it. And he goes, yes, I need your license and registration. So he goes to turn around towards his car and starts walking that way. And then I see another cop car come up. And I'm like, so angry at this point. I'm like, podunk Cedar Falls. I'm the biggest thug in this town. Like these cops got nothing to do. They need two cops for me. I'm going eight miles an hour over the speed limit. Or, I don't know, I can't do math. Was it 20, 38, 13 miles an hour. And, and thank you, Sean. And then I notice, wait, that's not another cop car. That's this guy's cop car. And he's bewildered at who is driving my car right now. Okay, so the dude left it in drive. And he's like, he's probably looks my age. But look like he's his first day on the job. And he just did something really, really bad, and he's bewildered at why his car is driving right now as he's outside the car in the street. And to this moment, I still don't even know how that car didn't smoke the back of my car, but he starts running after it, and it, like, misses my car barely, starts heading for a person's house, ramps up on the sidewalk. He runs into the yard. The car, the car is going in their yard and literally goes up and hits a tree, Okay. And he's like, got it. And then he opens the door. He's got his foot like in here, like that <laughs> gets in and like backs it up, rolls down the window and says, all right, man, uh, you're, good to, you're good to go. Just slow down, okay? And I said, yeah, sorry, man. Mistakes happen. And <laughs> like the fifth bad thing I did in that 10 minutes. And um, I see him like, he pulls out, he goes away. I see him like pulling the other side of the street and he gets out the car and he's checking out his bumper to make sure it's, it's okay. You know, and I am just cracking up on my way home. Like, man, I should have had a ticket. I deserved a ticket for multiple things. And, and then I started thinking about it and was like, wait a second. 
this guy was trying, you know, he deserved to give me a ticket and, and, you know, give justice right then. But the moment he realized, oh, shoot, I just did something wrong. He just wanted to get out of there. Get out. And that's the only reason I'm telling that story because I feel like that's what this dude was trying to do. (laughs) (laughs) You see, he just wanted to escape. He wanted to get out there and hide. He was trying to trap Jesus. And then he realizes he's inadequate. That he actually can't live up to this standard. He can't actually love the Lord, our God, with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so he tries to get cheeky with it. And he says, well, who then, who then is my neighbor? And he wants to lower the standard so that he can feel better about himself. And then Jesus tells the story. Look at verse 30. Because a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, Jerusalem, like this story was made up. It's a parable. It didn't really happen. But Jerusalem to Jericho is actually a a real, you know, road that people would take. And it was 17 miles long. And it's very common that, that thieves and bandits would hide out in the rocks and they would wait for merchants to come along. And it was a great place to, to rob them. And so stuff like this did happen. In fact, there was, there was a little section of it that was called the Pass of Blood. And what Jesus is saying happens in this story is that, hey, this guy's going along this road and he's attacked and he's robbed of all his stuff and he's beaten on the road, dying. He's half dead. He's all alone. In verse 31, Jesus continues. He says, now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. You see, both priests and, and Levites were, were highly respected, viewed as highly religious people. And both of them, when they see this guy, and they do see him, they intentionally walk to the other side of the road so they don't have to pass by him. And really, they're probably thinking, I don't want to take the time for this. I don't want this to inconvenience my day. In fact, this guy's half dead, which means the robbers are close. I don't want, I don't want to stop for this. I don't want to risk my life for this person. And the Levite does the exact same thing the priest does. And then Jesus says, verse 33, but a Samaritan. All right, let me, let me just stop and explain what a Samaritan is really quick because this really would have caught the guy off guard, this, this Jewish lawyer. You see, the Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans were, were half Jew, half Gentile, meaning half Jew, half, half every other ethnic, like a, a different ethnicity. They weren't full Jewish. And the Jews hated them. They viewed them as traitors and the lowest of the low. And they wanted nothing to do with the Samaritans. It's like how the Malfoys, you know, if you're Harry Potter, man, like mudbloods. Are you thinking? Yes. It's exactly how the Malfoys would think of mudbloods. Like they want nothing to do with them, hated them. And so that would have totally caught this guy. Like, in fact, this parable in your Bible, it's probably called the Good Samaritan. That's probably, if you've heard this parable before, you've heard of it as that. If Jesus would have told the guy, hey, I'm going to tell you a parable of the Good Samaritan, the dude would have laughed out loud and said, ha, 
Good Samaritan. That's an oxymoron. There's no such thing as a good Samaritan. The only good Samaritan is a dead Samaritan. That's probably what he would have said. They hated Samaritans. But Jesus continues this. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii. It's about two weeks, two weeks of, 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 of stay at an average inn. And he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So Jesus shares a story about the Samaritan, the enemy of the Jews, people that this lawyer would have hated the most. And he's the one who actually gets off his horse and takes the time to care for this person, pour out his oil on this person, bandage him up, save his life, put him on his own horse, bring him to the inn, pay for him to be able to stay there, and then tell the innkeeper, hey, anything else that there is, no matter what, I'm gonna pay for it, put it on my tab. It's mine. What's crazy about this too is, is, is back then, like if, if, if something like that happened to you, you owed a debt and you couldn't pay it, you just became a slave. And so now at this point, really what he's also doing is like saving this guy from becoming a slave. And Jesus shares this and then asks, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer responds, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Notice the lawyer can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan because of his hatred for Samaritans. He didn't even want to say the guy's name. He just says, the one who showed him mercy. The reality is, is none of us live up to that standard. None of us Love even the people closest to us, our best friends like that. And yet, this Samaritan, he did it for an enemy. For someone he would have hated and someone who would have hated him. And really, Jesus is showing, hey, the standard for you to have eternal life is so high. You can never reach it the best thing that could have happened to this person is that he actually goes away and tries to live this way and then realizes how short he falls and that he'd go back to Jesus and repent and ask for mercy. But we don't see what happens. And notice Jesus makes the hero in the story a Samaritan, not a priest or Levite. And I want to point out two reasons why. Two reasons why I think Jesus did this. You can write these down. The first is your morality is not enough to give you eternal life. Your morality is not enough to give you eternal life. And the second is to point out our need for a true neighbor. You see, by putting a priest and a Levite in here, what it does is it shows that, hey, your, your morality can't take you that far. Your good works 
the best things that you can do? You trying to be a good person? You trying to go to church a bunch? You trying to read your Bible as much as you can? You trying to be kind to others? You'll never be able to meet God's standard. You need to be perfect. And by pointing out the priest and Levite both passing by, hey, these are people who are a lot better than us, a lot better than all of us in this room. And they didn't love even close to the way that God requires. And the truth is every single one of us failed at this. See, almost every religion in the world will point out that, that, that for us to be right with God or for us to have eternal life, then what we need to do is be good enough. Do enough good things. Be better than the person next to you. And if you do enough, then maybe they'll accept you. Maybe you'll be able to go and have eternal life. But that's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, it teaches the opposite, that we can't do enough. Look at what Paul writes in Romans 3 about the law. Romans 3.19. He says, now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. It's talking about Old Testament law here. Hey, all these rules that God gave his chosen people, we know that, that what they, whatever it says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped, so that we'd shut up and we'd stop trying to justify ourselves to God and, and pretend that we are actually better than we are. And instead do the opposite, that the whole world may be held accountable to God, that we'd realize that we can't do it, that we've sinned against God and we need mercy. And then verse 20, Paul makes it even more clear. He says, for by the works of the law, that means by doing good things, by whether going to church, by loving your neighbor, by loving God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, none of us will be able to do that in a way that's enough to receive eternal life. We have to do it perfectly. And we can't do that. And he says, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin, the law was meant to expose our need for a savior, our need for grace. It was never given to God's people so that they'd be able to justify themselves. So then the question is, how can we have eternal life? And the answer, which is our second point, is we need a true neighbor. You see, the key to understanding this parable is to notice where the lawyer is placed in Jesus' story. Notice, Jesus doesn't tell the parable and put the lawyer on the horse and the Samaritan on the road. Like, he didn't go to the lawyer and say, hey, a guy just like you was traveling, and he came across a Samaritan who was on the ground who had just been robbed and had just been beaten. And the guy just like you went and poured out oil for him and healed him, bandaged him up, took, put him on, uh, on his own horse, took him to the innkeeper, paid all his expense. You go and do likewise. Jesus doesn't do that. Because the lawyer would have been like, heck no, I ain't touching him. I'll run him over with my horse and put him out of his misery. I'm not going by that guy. I hate that guy. But Jesus doesn't do that. That's not the story Jesus told. He puts the lawyer on the road. And he puts the hated Samaritan on the saddle. 
And by doing this, Jesus is asking the lawyer the question, what if it were you in the road? What if you were lying without hope and half dead? And what if your only hope was an act of free grace to you from an enemy who doesn't owe you any mercy, in fact, owes you the opposite? What if you were shockingly saved by the grace of someone who owes you nothing but rejection? Only then would you get up and begin to love others differently. Only then would that change your life. Only then would you recognize, I need grace just as much as the next person. I'm not better than anybody else. You'd recognize I was saved from someone who I had rejected and resisted my whole life. And that would begin to rid you of your pride and your morality. But you'd recognize that you were saved completely from an act of grace from someone who owed you nothing. And notice how Jesus turns this man's question around. In the beginning, the lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus turns it and asks him, who was a neighbor to you? Who was the neighbor to the man in need? And the lawyer has to choke out. He can't even use the word Samaritan. He just says, the one who showed mercy. I don't know, is it making sense to you? Do you realize what Jesus has done on your behalf? Here's what the gospel says. Here's Christianity at its core. Here's what the Bible teaches. Is that Jesus Christ came into the world. He came onto the road. He didn't owe us anything. He's God and he's created everything. In fact, we owed him. and We rejected him. And we sinned against him and wanting nothing to do with him. But when he came to our place on the road and he saw us lying there half dead, dying, hopeless, unable to fix ourselves, unable to be made well, he had compassion on us. When Jesus Christ saw us, he knew that the stop wouldn't just risk his own life, but that it would actually cost his life. That for him to stop and actually help us and make us right with God, he had to die and pay the cost of our sins. But he did it. For Jesus to get down, to come to us and put us on his place, on his saddle, cost him his life. This is the gospel. I believe this is what Jesus wants us to see tonight. The most famous verse in the Bible is John 3, 16. You've probably heard it. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus. Jesus willingly went, lived a life that we were required to live, but could not because we're broken. And on the cross, God punished Jesus as if he lived my life and as if he lived yours. It was a great exchange. Jesus took our sin upon himself and it's been paid in full. Just like this Samaritan completely saves this guy's life. That's what Jesus wants to do with yours. And he offers himself to you. There is nothing that you can do to justify yourself and make you right with God. 
You won't hear that here. You won't see that in God's word. And that's the best news in the whole world because we all, every single one of us fall so, so short. And we know this isn't all that there is. And man, the way we receive, the way we receive grace is through faith. I left out the second half of John three sixteen, but it's, it's for God's love of the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It means acknowledge that you're broken, that you cannot do it on your own and that Jesus did everything in your place. And then you'll be free. And not only free from the penalty of sin, but, but a brother with Jesus, a son of God, sealed by his spirit, secure, knowing that it's not on your own shoulders. It's all company. Only when we see the ultimate true neighbor, Jesus, and receive the grace that he offers, will we begin to then go out and love others in a way that honors the Lord and love God. I'm not sure where you're at right now. Maybe this is the first time that the message of Christianity has made sense to you. I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna worship. But if you're not sure where you are at with God, I would encourage you just, just to sit and talk to him and think about these things and begin looking at his word. The answers are there. God's word makes it very clear that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. That he is the way, the truth, and the life. And the only way we can be made right with God is through faith in his son, Jesus, and the work that he's done in our place. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this gospel truth that is the sweetest message to my ears and hopefully everybody else's ears in this room. That our salvation isn't on our own shoulders. That we don't have to be perfect to have eternal life, which we could not be. But we can be secure knowing that what Jesus did was enough. That his perfect life was enough. That his death on the cross was enough. That he rose again, proving that his sacrifice was enough. Lord, if anybody here is feeling just so burdened by guilt or by sin, I say we just give that to you. That you would make the gospel so real to them and that they would trust in the work that Jesus did. And Lord, for Christians in the room, those who've already trusted in you, who have acknowledged that they're broken and that Jesus is the answer. Lord, that they would be reminded tonight that the things they do for you now as a son or daughter of God doesn't change their position with you. You love them solely because of Jesus. I need to be reminded of that because I forget it. 
We love you, God. And we thank you for who you are and how merciful you are. I praise you, in Jesus' name.